This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit SalemPresWS.org. That's SalemPresWS.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. from the book of Philemon, which is tucked between Titus and Hebrews near the back of your Bible. Um, It's easy to miss in some Bibles. It's just one page, Um, but it's Philemon. I'm going to be reading out of the NLT version, and uh, we're going to be reading just verses 1 through 7. So this is Philemon 1 through 7. Hear from the Word of God. This letter from Paul, a prisoner for preaching the good news about Christ Jesus, and from our brother Timothy. I'm writing to Philemon, our our beloved co-worker, and to our sister, Apphia, and to our fellow soldier, Archippus, and to the church that meets in your house. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people. And I'm praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things that we have in Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Okay, you can have a seat. Paul wrote 13 letters that were included in the New Testament canon. He's influential, but he's also not well understood, in my opinion. Because of the Gospels, we have a good sense of where Peter and James and John fit into the story of Jesus. And I admit, I have a poor grasp of the stories and acts that are about Paul and how they fit with his writing. Where did Paul live and when? What are our modern conceptions of Paul? Was Paul some later co-opter of the Jesus movement, whose writing emphasized a few axes he had to grind with Jesus and Judaism? Paul's writing has tone, and often people sense a tone they don't love in Paul. But filling in these biographical details, I think, can help us sort of tune our ears to how to hear Paul as he's meant to be understood. So we're doing the next two weeks in the book of Philemon, and we've been studying Romans, and we're going to pick Romans back up after that. And both of those were written by Paul, so I just felt like this was a good chance to get to know Paul through a different letter in the midst of Romans. Um, So we're going to take that break and, and talk about Philemon in two parts over the next two weeks. 
Paul was probably born about 10 years after Jesus was born. So he wasn't much younger than Jesus. His experience of meeting Jesus by the Spirit on the road to Damascus probably happened within a year or two of Jesus' death. Now, you might not believe that Paul really encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, but even so, there's good evidence that Paul believed <laughs> this happened. And that incident, whether a delusion or reality, it happened very close to Jesus' crucifixion. And the reason that's important is because if, if, even if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead or that, that Paul encountered the risen Jesus, it's important to acknowledge that Paul was a contemporary of Jesus and his followers, not a later character, which I think sometimes we think he is. He also didn't jump right into writing. I think if we see Paul as this guy who met Jesus and then just started writing these people, his opinions, you might think, you know, that's a little off-putting. But he was actually a contemporary of the apostles in his ministry. He worked alongside them for about 15 years after Jesus' death, being discipled by Barnabas, going on missionary journeys. And then it was 15 years after Jesus' death, after having spent intensive time with the apostles, helping plant churches, that he visited Galatia and Thessalonica. And he had known the churches there. And so that's when he wrote his first letters, and he wrote them to those churches about specific issues that they faced. So imagine someone you've known and shared a spiritual life with since 2005, okay? The memories are probably very fresh because it wasn't that long ago. Yet the depth of intimacy is probably rich because that is a long time for a relationship develop, to develop and deepen. And for all of you, that is longer than your time at Salem Press for the most part the exception of maybe the Millers. Romans and Philemon come a little later in Paul's life. They come about 20 years after Jesus' death. Paul was in prison in Ephesus, we think. This would have happened sometime between the accounts in Acts 19 and Acts 20. And Ephesus was in an uproar over Paul, and around the same time, he writes to Philemon from Ephesus. Philemon lived in Colossae, which is about 125 miles from Ephesus. The Philemon is not a book that's often studied, but it is a tiny letter that was written in this particular region that has these emphases that we can trace across Paul's letter, uh, across all of his letters, to see what the kingdom project was just after Jesus' ascension. So I want to dig into letters and why Paul writes letters and why we have letters in our Bible. Because the genre of epistle or letter dominates our experience of Paul, we import on him assumptions about his tone, about his personality, or even what he's getting at theologically. But it's important to think about how we're perceiving that tone. The Bible Project, which is a group that puts out these animated videos on books of the Bible, did a series recently on epistles, and they point out that epistles are not essays. They're letters. They're one side of a contextual, personal, communal, relational correspondence. The Gospels and Acts, which are the main chunk of the New Testament, 
are not history as we understand it in the modern academic discipline, but they are written in the style of ancient biography. They're capturing the events and the sensibility around the life of Jesus. The Gospels are taking the life of Jesus, offering the links to the history of Yahweh and Israel, and illustrating for the readers Jesus' character, his personality, his choices, and his experiences. I think we often read biblical literature as if the Gospels are movies about Jesus and his people, and the epistles are later articles that are written about the movies. It'd be like watching Greyhound or Hamilton and then reading articles that unpack the meaning of other sources of context. Of course, setting them side by side, you would privilege the movies over the articles. A film far exceeds a critic's article about it in its enjoyment, in its creativity, in its emotion, emotional uh, depth and impact. And this is what happens if we read Paul's letters the expectation that they're, they're essays. And the same goes for the other epistles, too. The tone can feel inconsistent. The emphases vary, and they fail at grabbing us with a narrative. So do we expect letters to be treaties on theology? If so, then Paul can be pretty confusing and frustrating. But Paul's not writing unprompted essays things he highlights and unpacks are prompted. If we read Paul as an essay writer, then Paul's emphases seem like hobby horses. But a letter has a correspondent. A letter is a conversation. And is it not consistent with God's relational character, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who spoke through the prophets, to not send essays, but rather communicate at that time and down through history in a conversational medium. Paul can get uncompromising. He can get snarky in his tone, which is repelling, especially in an essay. Paul can also be obsessive about a theological idea, which can be irritating when it seems unsolicited or without context. When you put together uncompromising, snarky, and obsessive together with an essay, you feel a tone of legalism and unattractiveness. If you pair that with a lack of knowledge about when Paul's writing and forgetting that he's actually corresponding with people he has a relationship with, then it seems like Paul's just inventing his own religion or steering what Jesus did in a totally different direction. And all this together creates a rather unattractive Paul. Yet, I think this is the caricature many people have of Paul. Paul's writing to a person or a community, though. He's either responding to a letter that's been written to him, like the Corinthians, or a report of a community, like the Galatians, or because of a situation that's developing, like Onesimus returning to Philemon. Consider Paul's place in Christian history this way. What if we conceive of the Gospels as like Ken Burns' Civil War documentary, and the epistles as letters of those who were actually living during the Civil War. The narrative picture in the documentary will be more holistic, more encompassing, but the correspondence gives emotional and spiritual insight. The letters, while incomplete, are filled with personal tone 
and offer context for specific things people were wrestling with at the time. A similar analogy would be the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer's friend and protege Everhard Becky wrote a detailed biography of Bonhoeffer's life, not unlike the Gospels. But the two also corresponded while Bonhoeffer was incarcerated in the Tegel prison and later when he was in two Nazi concentration camps. Those letters were later published. Bonhoeffer's biography tells the story and his letters reveal what he was wrestling with spiritually and theologically. So Acts tells the story and Paul's epistles reveal what the early church wrestled with spiritually and theologically. Paul's intensity about grace through faith in Galatians is a particular problem. His reigning in of the Corinthians comes because they wrote him first, asking for help to bring peace to their chaotic community. These letters are not essays. They have context that involve a community whose actions or even a request for, for help prompt Paul to write. This matters for Philemon because people often wonder why Paul didn't write an essay that outright condemns slavery. In a way, I do believe he accomplished this, but the genre matters in how we understand such a, such a proposition. A letter of appeal may make such a plea differently than an essay. It also matters because people read Philemon one-dimensionally. They think that it is a thesis on what the early church thought about slavery, but it's not. It's a letter that has something broader. It has little touch points to Paul's other thoughts in a way that would be very all over the place for an essay that would get really bad grades, but what but works well in a com conversational style that's related to unpacking theology in a relationship. Next week, we're gonna talk about the slavery aspect of Philemon, but this week, I wanna explore Paul's broader theology as revealed in Philemon. I'm not trying to be cute by harping on the epistolary or letter genre, or make an excuse for Paul for not being more didactic about slavery. I think letters just were God's brilliant way of communicating the context of Christ's kingdom coming in the early church, while also allowing for those teachings to reverberate for a millennia later. So let's dig into the letter uh, and its theology now. The first section of the letter is just thick with relational connections. Paul knits himself, Timothy, and Philemon together as a family. He says, Timothy is our brother. They're both connected to Timothy, but not separately. It's implied that Paul sees Philemon as his brother too, as family, because Timothy is our brother, meaning we are brothers. Timothy is family to both Philemon and Paul. Paul and Philemon are family because they're both family to Timothy. Now we add our sister, Apphia, and our fellow soldier, your translation might read, Archippus. The Greek word used to describe Archippus is someone who shares in toil, someone who works with you through conflict, someone who's on a campaign with you. We have the family ties of Timothy and Philemon, then we weave in Apphia and Archippus with equally intimate and binding language, and then all the church in your house. When I was translating the passage, I found it interesting that Paul literally says, 
the church in your house. He doesn't have a concept of a house church. He says, the church in your house. House is not modifying church to imply churches should meet in houses. What's more clear is that churches are a thing and they meet in places. Churches are composed of people woven together in deep family-like bonds. And Paul obviously considers himself part of this family, not just an advisor. Paul's not sending a theological essay to a distant church. He's not a consultant. He's a father figure. He feels deep affection, gratitude, and worry for them. He's clearly bonded to them as we see in the family relationships. He's grateful for them. He prays for them, it says in verse 4. Verse 5 shows that he likes to hear about them as a sweet grandfather hearing reports of his grandchildren might. And he's not keeping score about their behavior. He feels like they truly work from the inside out for the good of God's family of Christians. Verse 7 literally reads, I hold so much joy and encouragement from your love because the guts of the saints have been refreshed through you. The word that's probably translated in your Bibles, heart, is not the word in Greek, cardia, like cardiac, which is usually related to the heart center of something. It's actually the word for like the inner depths, the bowels. It actually means the entrails of a person, which is kind of gross. But Paul's implying that Christians are really an actual body, inseparable, affected, for better or worse by each other. And before making this difficult plea to Philemon about Onesimus, he appeals to all the good that has come from this church in a house in Colossae. Working backwards, verse 7 says, The goodness and love of this spiritual family is working from the depths, the guts, outward. And then verse 6, I think, is the poetic center of this first section of Philemon. Paul uses the word koinonia, saying, And I pray the koinonia of your faith can animate and activate the knowledge of the whole goodness within us in Christ. There's so much to unpack here. Koinonia is a word for having things in common in Greek. It can range from meaning fellowship to a family business to a cooperative. And I think cooperative is the best translation here. Paul's saying, from the family of people, a fabric woven together in love is an inseparable cooperative. In a lot of English translations, it says something like, that your faith may be effective. But the words Paul is using here are much more descriptive. The phrase be effective is literally to activate, to animate, to become active. You could translate verse 6, and I pray the cooperative of your faith can animate and activate the knowledge of the goodness within us in Christ. It's like the goodness of Christ is yeast. Tiny yeast is sown into fresh flour and water as it rests through fermentation and proofing, the dough rises all throughout. This spiritual family is not like ice cubes sharing a tray. They are one single dough in whom Christ's goodness is activated and animated. Notice how many times Paul mentions Christ. He's a prisoner for Christ. The peace he offers comes from Christ. He delights in their love for Christ. 
If you read the rest of Paul's letters, you know that Paul harps a lot on the weakness of the flesh and the sinfulness of humans. So the phrase, the goodness within us, should stand out. That should stand out when you read Paul's letter and he says, you know what, all you good people with all that good stuff in you? It doesn't sound like Paul's anthropology. Paul has a, a low, or I would say accurate, expectation for humans. So why would he highlight goodness within us? Well, we also see that Paul has a very high view of humans who are connected to each other in Christ. He sees the church as beautiful. He calls her the bride of Christ. The way Paul holds these things together is by this tiny phrase, in Christ. It might seem like a religious platitude, but it's not. It is a phrase that is packed with theological significance. The reason I spent so much time today telling you about Paul is because if we think of Paul as a later philosopher of the Jesus movement, and we see his writings as essays reflect, reflecting backward on Christ, then we will not understand how deep and rich is his passion for Christ and how that affects us. Paul is not a co-opter of Jesus' message or a later personality leader. Paul is a passionate subordinate. He and his friends are not career people who are homeowners with a political party that they're registered to and a hobby or two while also dabbling in a religion. They are consumed by life in Christ. Look at all these prepositions that surround Paul's mention of Christ. He's for Christ. Credits peace coming from Christ. They have love for Christ, and they find goodness within because they are in Christ. The word Christ means Messiah. And Messiah means deliverer or rescuer. So if you assume that Paul is a co-campaigner, co-soldier, co-operative with the apostles who preach about the kingdom, then we get a full picture that Paul's not just teaching us about how to be religious or how to get saved. Paul believes that the rescuer is also a king. Jesus is his rescuer king. Messiah Jesus. King Jesus. That is what is meant by the phrase Jesus Christ. Jesus is the name Christ is the title. And what about the little word in? Is it significant? It's not a word that's rich with meaning. And Christ is a word we hear all the time in church. So does in Christ really mean anything? Well, in does seem very intimate. It's like Christ is wrapping himself around us as a shelter or a quilt. Within this shelter are all these saints who are woven together love, like a lovely family, all blanketed by the love of their king. That is beautiful. And it also seems impossible. How can a group of unrelated people, unrelated human beings, become a church meeting in a house, a spiritual family, whose love refreshes their surrounding world from the inside out? When I think of humans getting together, I often don't think of that ending with them doing great things. We have a long history of getting together and doing stupid things. But most of the time I think that I'm a decent person with integrity and the capacity for good 
And I usually project that outward when I'm not thinking too critically. And I think, well, everyone else is like that too. And then I'm shocked when someone deviates from this expectation. That's most of my waking hours. But when I stop and I reflect on my interior life, my motivations, and I examine the history of humans, my expectations plummet. There's no way to be a Christian simply means to live for or after Christ. It must be more, more, more holistic and intimate and if it's going to cause me to have such a life of love and community as Paul is describing. I would need to switch places with God. And while I'm not uh, capable of such a feat, he is. Which is why the Son of God was born, the human Jesus. Jesus the man, God the Christ, who died the death I deserved, spilling his blood, which gave me new life. Messiah Jesus tipped the cosmos back from turning away from God toward God's vision of perfect community between humans and himself. And as the kingdom of Messiah Jesus spreads, we're changed from within every time we take this supper. At the table of our king, he reminds us of his sacrifice, and he feeds us literally and spiritually. We eat in remembrance, and we are filled spiritually. The Messiah did not demand that we fix ourselves suffered terrible torture, bled, died, and was buried. But after his surrender to suffering and death, he pushed out of the grave in victory and spread a kingdom of love that begins in the hearts of those who are in Christ. No wonder Paul and his friends were consumed only by a life of love.